0: For comedians, the corona pandemic has been no laughing matter in more ways than one. Comedians have had to find new ways of performing, and virtual versions of existing setups have had some success from acts performing stand-up over Zoom. Join us today as we discuss some of the challenges the industry faces today. Our guests will share some amazing experiences. (music)
1: Hello and welcome to TripCast360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment. This is Michael Gordon Bennett coming to you from Las Vegas, and I am joined by the Barbados Flash via the Big Apple, Dave Cumberbatch. Dave, 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 man, we about to have some fun today.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, You know, these days of COVID, man, you know, we got to have fun.
1: Well, yeah, you're, you're kind of sacrificing a lot there in New York. Is Broadway open or is it still closed?
0: Broadway is still closed. It's going to be closed until I think it's May of 2021. And I'll tell you, Michael, you know, as as someone who likes to go out for dinners and Broadway plays and comedy shows, I'm beginning to feel a little bit melancholy because I'm relegated to just watching them at home. It It must be tough for all those folks whose profession it is to entertain us huh
1: well let me let me throw you a little curveball here about half maybe two-thirds of the las vegas casinos are open right now you can go out to a casino right now but as regards to going to a show every show in this city has been canceled until at least sometime next year and i'm thinking I'm thinking to myself okay you don't want to do a show because maybe you got a thousand people sitting in a tiny room but what are you going to do with a thousand people sitting in a casino I mean, they're all touching the buttons on the slot machines. They're all sitting down. Yeah, they, I know they got masks on their faces and all that other stuff. My sister actually has two masks. She's a blackjack dealer. She's got the mask that covers her face, and then she's got the big shield down the front. I'm like, man, you, you know, uh, uh, on some level, I'm so damn tired of talking about COVID, but I, kn- I know it's a wait. You know, I, I, well, I, I know what it is.
0: But the option is, you know, the alternative, the alternative is to just stay at home and make babies, huh?
1: Well, you could do that. I'm a little old. <laughs> <laughs> But the but the practice would be good. <laughs> All right well so, since we're laughing a little bit, uh, we, we need to uh, j- jump on to our guest here. but before I uh, uh, bring him on, um, I just got a couple little show announcements. Um, you can catch our podcast at tripcast three sixty dot com that's our website tripcast three sixty dot com or wherever you get your podcast, you can uh, please share, subscribe, and like us with your friends and family and if you happen to be one of those people listening on iTunes, man, give us a rating, give us a five star rating don't waste your time with the other ones just Give us the damn five-star, get it over with. We, we, we really like doing this, and we want to bring more uh, of this to you. But, uh, you know, we need some attention, man. So, come on, give us the five-star.
0: And you can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. All right. And, and as Michael said, don't forget to subscribe and subscribe to our newsletter at TripCast360.com.
1: Amen. Now uh, let's, let's get on with some laughter here. We're going to uh, bring in our guest. Uh, we wanted to have a little fun today, so what better way to break up the monotony of quarantine and the continuous drone of electoral politics, although we may discuss that, than an interview with someone who makes us laugh for a living. Our guest has been a director, producer, and writer in the television and documentary world for over a dozen years with a passion for comedy, culture, travel, and strength in storytelling. Justin has found an income in authorship, which I'll let him explain what that means. He has created content for a wide range of networks from Comedy Central to MSNBC and worked alongside A-list talent from Paul Rudd and Kyle McLaughlin to 50 Cent. In addition to performing at clubs, theaters, and festivals across the US, Justin has toured in South Africa, Australia, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Germany, Scotland, Ireland, Estonia, and Japan. Man, you sound like a map. Anyway, who better to talk about travel and entertainment with a few laughs thrown in than Justin Herman? Man, what's happening?
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Let me tell you what income and authorship means. It means that I want you to think I'm smarter than you, so you fucking hire me. That's how it works. <laughs> <supposed to>. uh, <laughs> no one's called me out on it in a dozen years, my friend, and you were the first, and I respect it. I've been waiting.
0: <laughs> I read a quote from you, um, quote. I've been directing, producing international shows for TV for over a dozen years for Netflix, HGTV, Esquire, Travel Channel, etc. I circumnavigated the globe at the beginning of 2020, inadvertently chasing COVID around the world. I've been low-key kidnapped in Vietnam, hospitalized in India, went on an epic cross time zone date in Russia. And those are just the personal (laughs) stories. But I'll tell you, you, Justin, I read that quote, and I, I said, you know what? There's a whole lot here to digest. And as I read that statement, I thought about how I would start off interviewing you. Mm-hmm. And then the thought came to mind. The thought came to mind that a comedian can be funny <laughs> with just about any subject matter. So my first, <laughs> question, my first question to you is, when did you first know that you were funny?
2: I'm still waiting to figure that out, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, <laughs> it's- I, you know, comedy was always, has always been the lens with which I preferred to communicate. Even as I was a shy kid, I didn't know how to talk to people. I learned how to flirt with girls by telling jokes. I learned how to make friends by telling jokes. Uh, I never thought it was uh, a path to, to, to income. I went to film school. Everything I made was a comedy. I got out of film school. Everything I made independently was a comedy. Like, I just couldn't get away from it, but I didn't think anyone would ever hire me to do it until they did. And then once I started to do it, I was like uh this is this is weird they're wrong but i'm gonna keep faking it until they catch me and uh and i've kind of kept going ever since so it's um yeah i don't know it 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 just it
0: it worked is any subject matter that is off limits for you no
2: um there are subject matters that that i could talk about that would be off limits for you uh (laughs) and that's the difference i think a comedian has the opportunity to make anything funny and i think you technically can but I think it also depends on who the audience is you know you got to know your audience half of stand-up comedy to me is just reading the learning how to read rooms you know i've toured in rural florida as a pretty liberal dude and i know what my jokes are and uh i knew what they're going to respond to and what they didn't and i just yelled at them and leaned into it and they they got on board but um you also got to know when you're potentially going to offend people no matter how good the joke is and you have to be prepared for that too some people just aren't ready for it you know if, and it, I don't heart fault anybody for not wanting to hear certain jokes about heart issues, but I think it's also everything's fair game as long as you're not trying to be the biggest piece of shit, right? Like, that's the difference. Like, what's it's, your intention? True. Yeah,
1: and no, I think you're right. I mean, you know, for somebody who's uh, hung around uh, Hollywood and comedy for decades now, um, I've been in those rooms where the comedian actually... I don't want to say inadvertently insulted the audience, but sometimes they do. It just happens as part of telling a joke. And, you know, and I would laugh, but I I look over my shoulder and like, oh, the audience didn't really get the meaning behind the joke. And now they're taking it seriously. You know, I don't like politically correct. It's one of the reasons I got out of the Air Force, because everything's politically damn correct. I'm not that person. And, you know, your your point about rural Florida, I, I spent part of my childhood in Panama City, Florida. You mm, can't get you, you, yeah. Thank you. Uh, you can't get more. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get more rule than that. And yeah. uh, you know, they. They. I remember uh, Playboy did a, a a a spread probably twenty or thirty years ago, and they referred to that part of Alabama as the redneck, or uh, Florida as the redneck Riviera. Uh, <laughs> I love know, that. And there's, and, and they were so right. Uh, I mean, yeah. the the people were, eh, you know, uh, for a kid who was um, a military brat but born in New Jersey, I wasn't used to that, man. Y'all, y'all ain't y'all ain't from around here, is
2: you? And th- th- that's how they talk to me, and I'm like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: nah.
2: Yeah, yeah. They talked to me that. That's how their heckles sound, and I would just be like, you have to learn <laughs> English before you can talk to me. <laughs> <answer>. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I. Listen, if you're going to yell at a comedian, you're opening a door. And uh, I'm not a mean-spirited person. And even when I yell at hecklers, I'm not mean about it. But I'm cutting because you've you've opened a door. You want to interrupt someone at their job? They're not going to let you do that. That's, that's part of our job. Um, <laughs> but that's what's great about, that is the flip side. That is what's great about anti-PC America. You know, there's most of the things about anti-PC America, I would argue, are trending in the wrong direction. But from a comedian's perspective, I'd rather perform for a conservative audience than like a hyper woke liberal audience, because the, even though that's my demographic in terms of how I intellectually think and process and the way the origin of a lot of my material, they get a, they want to be offended, they're waiting to be offended uh, versus the conservative audiences. They just want to laugh. And if you're if you're accidentally racist, if you're a piece of garbage, they're going to laugh at it. And it kind of gives you a freedom that you don't have when you know that they're waiting to judge you it's two sides of a coin pros and cons of each but a lot of comics prefer it because (laughs) it's easier it's more fun they're they're in it they're in it to play
1: you know Um, i've heard bill say the exact same thing he says some mm. of his best audiences are the conservative audiences from down south
2: he tours all these like you know he tours like the louisianas of the world i mean he goes to the liberal cities but you're getting a mix and they're still they're mixing it up man and it, there's a reason for it, you know. There's a reason why he doesn't go to New York, LA <laughs> for all the shows. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've sat
1: in the audience uh, here in uh, in Vegas when he came for a show, and the. Um, <laughs> We were at the Mirage, I believe, where he was performing. He was usually there at the Palms. And some redneck dude was just harassing him to no end because he told a couple politically um, yeah. incorrect, pardon the pun, Bill Maher, uh, jokes mm-hmm. from his, uh, about the Southern people. And this yeah. guy, this redneck dude just went off. And now I'm bringing this up because I was watching some of your YouTube videos and the heckling fan is, is to me, as a, if I were a comedian, I would love that. It gives you something to play yeah. off of.
2: Yeah. It's great. I mean, listen, it's great. It's great. Let me take that back because it's actually not, but it can be, um, you know, you spend your whole career, you know, there's people 20 years, 30 years doing this thing where they're crafting, developing their voice, their tone, they're meticulously pacing their jokes. And then if some drunk dude is like, yeah, what about me? (laughs) That's like 20 years of work down the drain. Um, so it's not what you want. But it also depends on your, again, it all depends on your expectations, like most things in life. If you're going in there and your anticipation is just to to monologue at this audience and get them to laugh, which is the job, um, and you're not willing to pivot, then you're going to hate it. Uh, But if you're open to an uh, alternate uh, reality of what you're expecting and trying to plan for, you can get gold out of it. It can be really, some of my favorite moments on stage, especially internationally, have been dealing with hecklers. Because there is such a cultural exchange implicit in the way we talk to each other, and that it, it just becomes this interesting dynamic immediately. Because immediately we're speaking different accents, we speak different languages. There's a cultural barrier. In Finland, when they want to heckle you, they raise their hand. What? Like really? a, oh my god, it's unbelievable. Because there's just like they don't. They're, the too Finns, polite. they're so. They're they're so polite. They're also such a serious population in a lot of ways. The Finns were the only culture, the only country to beat Russia in a land war in the 20th century. That ain't comedy background. That's, <laughs> those are serious people. So they don't understand the dynamic. It's it just, yeah, it's a different culture. It's a younger comedy scene. An audience is, they've just put their hand up and wait for you to call on them. Teacher, it's my turn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, saw just that. It's like you... a bullseye to be made fun
1: of. <laughs> you had that YouTube video on where you were trying to get that guy to say black yeah uh, black don't you know when you once you try oh, right, black don't right. go back and, yeah. and the guy just didn't get it it was like huh how did you you know <laughs> what part of the 20th century and then they realized okay he's in finland maybe they don't understand the dynamic of the joke but it was funny uh, oh yeah when he finally yeah. said oh yeah that
2: <laughs> <laughs> i mean to be uh to his point the, the Finns are like origin story white you know it's uh i'm a quarter italian and a jew to them that's ethnic that's uh <laughs> um, <laughs> So hey, I, I, I won't,
1: I won't get into all the stuff that I am, but I know Dave's going to bring this up. So I may as well bring my book. Now I wrote this book. That's me. Wow. When I was uh about 12 months old, but the subtitle of the book says my journey is America's whitest black kid.
2: <laughs> I love it, man.
1: <laughs> and and, and it, it was actually a story of my childhood. Um, you know, because I went to school, I started school in Spain, I went to kindergarten and first or second grade in Madrid, but we moved around a lot. And by the time I got to high school in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy, I was the only black kid in school. And, uh, you, you know, back in the 70s, um, you know, trying to date somebody who didn't look like you was a little tough, but I'm biracial. You know, I got a dad who looks white and he didn't teach me one damn thing about what it was like to be white or black. He just kind of let me flounder, you know, and got my ass kicked a few times. You know, it's like, Dad, come on, help me out here. Nah, you're on your own. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Anyway, that that was cool. Tell us the story about being kidnapped in in Vietnam. And um, like I said, like, like I said, when we got started, you know, comedians, comedians have the ability to, to add humor to everything. Was there anything humorous about that experience? Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, everything
2: about it is uh, spectacular, in my opinion. Um, I call it low key kidnapped because nobody put a bag over my head and like held me for ransom. You know, we have it, but I was definitely uh, picked up from one place, unbeknownst to me, and taken to another. So basically, I got I flew. I was in Thailand for three weeks. I was 22 years old, and I flew to Hanoi. And I'd been sick for a couple days, and I was a little bit out of it. I was taking, like, a shared taxi into town. And halfway to town from the airport, we pulled over. Dude opens the, like, the highway. This dude opens the door, looks at me, starts yelling at the driver of Vietnamese, and slams the door shut. Didn't think anything of it. We learned in uh, retrospect, he definitely marked me and asked where he was taking me. And then he brought me to the hotel I was going to. And this is Lonely Planet. There's no cell phones. There's no smartphones. So, wow. like, I'm working with the Lonely Planet. I don't. All I only know is this little paragraph about the place. I said, I'm going to go here. And I walked in the door. And some guy met me right as I walked in and he said, I'm so sorry, we're booked, uh, but I can actually, we have a sister hotel right down the street. I'd be happy to take you there. And I said, great. I threw my backpack in my back. I hopped in the back of his motorbike. We went cruising God knows where through town and I ended up checking into this hotel and I'm going up to my room and they gave me the key. They shut the door and it, it was like a room that nothing worked in. Uh, the TV <laughs> on button just went straight through the TV. I mean, it was like, it was, a, it was a front, but they let me live in the front. Like, it was like a weird
3: <laughs> thing.
2: And they I, I stayed there for two nights. And every time I'd walk through the lobby, I was the only one staying there. I'd go down for, like, the toast breakfast that was for free. And there'd be nobody there. And they'd be watching me. And as soon as I stood up, they, they'd, like, hard-pitch me tourist packages. And they'd harass me walking out the door. And it took me a couple of days to realize that this was... They were just really like, this was like a hard sell. And I didn't know if they'd actually let me leave when I went to check out. So I never told them I was checking out. I basically snuck out of the building uh, with my bag <laughs> when it was time to leave. Um, and they totally grabbed, they grabbed me and they brought me somewhere. And it was the best possible kidnapping you could ever hope for. Uh, <laughs> it was like kidnap capitalism.
0: Were you there as a performer at that time?
2: No, I was, I was 22. I was barely a, an adult. Uh, I was barely okay. a human at that time. Um, I was just traveling. My dad had moved to Australia when I was 21. And so uh, I spent my last semester of college living in Australia and be closer to him. And then I just decided to to wander around Asia until they literally kicked me out. Um, My visas ran out. And uh, that's how I got really into traveling. And that's I was 22. I moved to New York. I lived on a couch. I shot a travel show pilot. Um, It was like a comedy travel show pilot that I wrote, I directed, I hosted. And I used that to pitch myself to a lot of people that didn't give a shit until somebody did and that's how i got my first job producing an international travel show
1: yeah
0: are there any other personal stories that you like to share <laughs> minute, I got the, funny funny what, funny personal stories what, oh wait a minute wait what yeah, time yeah, zone I was going to, to, to say
2: how long we got for this um uh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean dude I, I you know you've you've written, listed off most of the countries i've performed in and they're all uh, my favorite, I have a mantra in my life and I like to either like make people laugh or teach them about the world and that's how stand-up I didn't start doing stand-up till I was 30 you know I was uh, fully established as a director and producer in tv I had a, a whole career and then I just kind of started to ignore it to bomb at open mics because I wanted to become a better writer and uh and what I learned very quickly when I started touring that you know, travel shows are, as you guys know, it's, it's you're, you're basically trying to sum up aspects of this culture and sound bites and that's what stand up is plus punchline. Yeah. So the skill sets worked really easily. So uh, the juxtaposition of being an American, going to these places and just comparing America, the comparative politics of traveling is my favorite thing, right. you know, because when I went to Africa to perform, everybody in New York, my friends were well, like, you're going to Africa? Be careful, that place is dangerous. And this, then I went to Africa and it was great. And I made great friends. And then in Africa, they were, everybody was watching the news of all the violence at Trump rallies. And they were like, you're going home to America? well, <laughs> <laughs> that place is dangerous. <laughs> man, man, you, I know you've
1: experienced this because I know I have. The, the people in foreign countries know more about America than Americans do. That is true. And it yep. just oh, drives me up a fucking wall because we, we have the ability uh, to separate ourselves, uh, they do, uh for the visitor from the American politics of it. And, you know, they'll always treat you with respect and, you know, and welcome yeah. you to their country. But the minute you start talking about politics and American politics, all bets are off.
2: Do they? And I, I mean, they, you watch the news in other countries and there's news. It's like actually news. Yeah. Like there's the reporting on news. It's not just some loud bow tied moron's opinion. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about Tucker Carlson. Uh, it's, like news. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's insane. It's like truly, unless my dad moved to Australia when he was 50. And it wasn't—he never. My dad was born and raised in the Bronx. This wasn't a dude that was looking to live overseas. This was an accident he stumbled ass backwards into, and he found a, a better life than he'd ever known in America. He, I didn't know him as a happy person until he moved to Australia. It's truly remarkable. And he looks back, and people always—every time he comes to visit, people are like, "So, oh, are, are you ever going to move back?" And he laughs in their face, because the difference between the cultures of looking at the rest of the world is so dramatic. And Australia is the most American country on the planet. It is so from, it is like, it is the training wheels of travel, man, to go to Australia. You know, I think Australia is an overrated country for travel. And I'm not just saying that because I look like the poorest Hemsworth brother. Uh, it, <laughs> it's, it's just easy, man. It's, uh, and yet it's so different. They have a really, you, once you see what the world looks like outside of America and you really are willing to internalize it. You see, the view we have is, is so uh, isolationist, and it's so limiting. And I I really hope that COVID, as someone that traveled around the world chasing COVID, I was been wearing masks since January. I was i watched. I was in Asia in January watching how South Korea dealt with this, and I was in uh, Europe in February watching how Europe dealt with this before I came back to North America. And I knew this is what was going to happen. There was no no doubt. There was we have besides our vacuum of leadership, we are just culturally uh unable to think about the greater community because we are so self-centered in so many ways so it i hoped that covid was going to be this opportunity i knew it wouldn't but my hope my optimistic side which unfortunately never goes away uh hope that this would be the one thing the whole world is going through the exact same thing at the exact same moment when has this ever happened and how is this not an opportunity to see that we're just like everybody else and the truth is when you look at the results of COVID, we're actually significantly worse I was, than I was gonna else. say, we, we, lost, <laughs> we lost that battle. Uh,
1: yeah, y- man. Y- you know, it, it, it reminds me, uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola said this in a quote, I, I don't know how many years ago, but I just saw it recently. And he said, until America gets a handle on its run, rampant runaway capitalism, We're not going to be able to address the COVID problem. We're not going to be able to just uh, deal with uh, global warming or climate change or whatever euphemism you want to use to label it. We're not going to be able to do any of that stuff because we don't give a
2: crap about most of the rest of the world. We don't. We we truly don't. I mean, how many, what's the percentage of Americans that have passports? The three of us? I mean, it's like a crazy reality oh yeah uh... you, you'll be
1: shocked i i used to quote and this is back in the days when i worked at the travel channel uh back in the 90s and early 2000s i used to say only 12 percent of americans have a passport i kept repeating that even on some of the podcasts with dave and I, I kept repeating that up until about a month ago and i said well let me go online and look it up man i was shocked 35 to 40 percent of americans now have a passport the question is did they use it did they
0: use it right. Yep. <laughs> wow and they don't for that... i mean a huge percentage yeah. of americans I, I saw recently where they said a huge percentage of the folks that we look up to are athletes and so on. I've never voted. Actually, I saw when Mike Tyson said he was happy to be voting for the first time in his life. That's, that's ridiculous.
1: Shaq, Shaq, just, yeah, who gave up? Shaq just posted something online a couple of days ago. He voted for the very first time at age 48. Wow. Yeah.
2: I mean, that's that's the reality. I and mean, again, like, we are so disillusioned for so many reasons. And uh about about um uh, uh, about everything we were just a we're an attention seek we can't see past the attention um the t- seeking of attention is like the limit of our foresight this is why everyone was like COVID's oh, gonna be three weeks and then we're gonna be back to posting selfies and shit uh on vacation like <laughs> yeah. like that's the reason why we can't because we get these we're such like a tunnel vision world and i can go off into a lot of rants that are probably gonna be less funny than more uh um social anthropological about what social media has done to our point of view on the world and to our own culture but we've become very tunnel visioned and we have no foresight we can't see past the lanes that we're in yeah. and so how are you supposed to step back and see something larger than yourself yeah, yeah. um i mean i'm doing
1: well i i need to figure out what part of the american populace thinks a nepotistic failed billionaire a reality tv star could be president
2: well i mean listen we talked about this a little bit uh off i think it was off off, off mic but um you know, I, I, when I was in my 20s, I turned down reality TV jobs. I was broke. I was like living on couches, and when they offered me a job on Wife Swap, I was like, "Go oh, fuck <laughs> yourself. I'm not working <laughs> on <that shit." laughs> Cuz to me, it w- it was the worst of America being portrayed. It was just this gross social experiment for the sake of entertainment, and exploiting people for entertainment is the last way I want to be entertained, and the last thing I want to endorse. And- uh, I have a different perspective now as I've gotten older and I understand the business a little bit better, but that still stands true because what shows like The Real Housewives do, not a problem if you like it. Not a, it's not about judging who watches it or judging who's on it, but the, the ultimate reality of these shows, like MTV reality shows, and Real Housewives, is they're taking people who are uh, by default living their lives in ways in which we would see, have seen as the villain in movies in the 1950s. Like these are the evil people. These are the people that used to be the bad guys, but were so entertained by bad people Doing bad things that we've made them the protagonists of their own shows, and that that thus transforms into our culture that these people have something to tell us. We've given them authority, we've given them an income in authorship. Came all the way back yeah, around. I like that. And, uh <laughs> yeah. And that's how you get that's how you get the bankrupt moron from The Apprentice as your president because we that show is what legitimized him, not his business dealings. He was a, everybody in New York's known for forty years. This guy's a piece of garbage. There's no New Yorker that looks at, there's like seven of them that like, and there are six of them related to him that actually like him. Like, it's like nobody wants this guy, but people that don't know him and only know him from TV, they see him as famous and thus has authority.
1: And, 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 and that, that's a sad indictment on us because if we think just because you're famous, you can run a country. <laughs> uh, I, I need to find out what you're smoking and get some. <laughs>
0: How do you come up with your material? How do you prepare? And the reason I'm asking that, as you travel around the globe, And and you're doing your standard comedy. Do you find that the humor is the same? In other words, if if you talk about something about President Trump, I guess it would be the same. But if you talk about something that's happening here, are those folks aware of that or probably they're not aware of it? So how do you prepare for another culture?
2: So everything about stand up ultimately is you want every joke to work everywhere for every audience. I mean that's the goal, right? It's like you're you don't know who's going to be in the room and the idea is to create a universal set in theory. Um but you also want to be true to yourself and to be honest with yourself and that's the struggle of stand up. It's like how do you be specific to your point of view but everybody can relate to you? And when you go international it's a it's a you're just opening up for a white way larger potential variety of people that are watching you. And so for me I'll I'll make a list of every joke that I'm thinking about doing. And I'll go through it first and I'll make it right in red. Every cultural reference. Do they know Jay-Z and Beyonce got into a fight with Solange in the elevator? Can I do that punchline? Or will they not know what the hell I'm talking about? You know, what are the references? Do they have a shake weight there? Or am I going to be jerking off for no reason? Like, what are the references? <laughs> and do they work? Uh, and then also when I travel for stand up, the reason I l- love traveling internationally is because I, I write to, for the countries that I go to uh, as much as humanly possible, because I like to do again, the comparative politics. I like to show them that I know who they are. Because I think that's the best way to win over an audience. And then if I start talking about, uh, you know, inside baseball, Solange nonsense, they'll, they'll at least still be on board if I lose him for a joke or two. Um, but it's also, what's fun for me as a travel guy. So, uh, I prepare both by studying the place that I'm going to in the same way if I was shooting a travel show, but with way less professionalism. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I, and I analyze my material, you know, stand up is a, it's a written set. It's a written set. You make a plan. It's like life you make a plan and then recognize that life may take you somewhere else. And that's what happens with your sets sometimes. So um, you got to kind of be, be open to what what's going to happen, but um, I just try to prepare by having something to say, having a point of view and a comedic point of view and then hope that the punchlines back it up and you know you, you don't know if a joke works so you do it so that's why every comic is bombed more time you know i i've I bom- <laughs> got epic epic bombing stories Ep- i mean i believe it. i was in i performed in germany uh, uh a couple of years ago and the first show i did there i was headlining and it was this amazing show um and uh, i it was one of the best sets I'd ever done probably in my career. It was one of the most fun sets I'd ever done because I'd landed. I was jet lagged. I didn't know if they'd like any. I didn't know. I didn't know anything. I wrote, I wrote a change joke at the top of the set that catered to, to uh, uh, Germans. I used to do a joke where I'd say somebody just told me I have the only haircut that makes you look gay if you're a man
3: <laughs> or a woman. <laughs>
2: And I changed it to. Uh, somebody just told me I have the only haircut that makes you look like a gay man or a German woman, and it ah. was murdered. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and uh, and from there, it was just it was just applause. Like they were laughing for so long that I would just wait and I'd just be like this, and they keep laughing. Like it was like a
3: really just <laughs> great. It was such. Uh,
2: and I recognized that every set show is different. But the next night, I went and performed at an open mic, an all German language open mic. And I walked in there with all of this residual confidence. And I watched this open mic just, f- the train didn't go off the tracks. The train dug a hole and buried it in various <laughs> Like it, it was like a train crashing into a helicopter. It was like, how does this happen? It was hosted by a ventriloquist. Uh, every comic performed in German to silence. Maybe that's what they do in German. Maybe that's how you kill. I don't know. Uh, and then I followed a juggler who didn't even speak.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, really set the table for every. And then I went up there in English as an as an American, um, and I just. Bombed so spectacular. I, at one point, I said to them, I, "Again, I was just hitting them with every applause break joke." And I listened to the set from the night before. I made a set just the applause break lines. Mm, silence. silence. It was so bad that at one point I said, "Do you guys even speak English?" And some guy goes, "Yes, we understand you perfectly." <laughs> 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 That's
3: a bad indictment.
2: <laughs> I walked off stage, and this guy was like, "Hey, man, nice try." I was like, "Great, this is. I'm gonna leave." Uh, <laughs> just in the juxtaposition of those two shows to me a stand-up comedy in a nutshell that's one night versus the other and no matter how good one night is you you can't control the next night unless you're prepared right. to meet the moment in the moment i gotcha
1: it, it, was there anybody um when it comes to comedy that you kind of looked up to to kind of i don't want to say pattern yourself after because each comedian's got their own shtick but was there a couple of things that you saw from different comedians out there that you just say, Hey, I, I like a piece of this. I like a piece of this. I like a piece of that. And and then fit it to your personality.
2: A hundred percent. I mean, that's what everybody does, whether they know it or not. You're everyone's a chameleon for what the comedy they've absorbed is. So for me, like I, I love Louis CK, not his comedy, just his personal life, but I was a big fan. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, uh... <laughs> I, I won't touch that. Go uh, ahead. Um... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Neither would they. So yeah, um... The, I mean, it's a the case that one of the brilliant comedians of our generation. Say what you want about him. Outside of that, And that's a different conversation, obviously. But he he is a guy that was able to produce material at a rapider pace than anybody playing the game. Um, and he was an inspiration at, at one point for me. John Mulaney was in, has been an inspiration for me because he has an ability to be clean and to tell stories that aren't stories. They're stand up punchline material, but it's a story. Like he just. He's the way he performs. He's a guy that you see emulated. You go to open mics in New York City, and you see John Mulaney Jr. on stage all the time right. because he's got this—he's got a delivery style that's his own, and it's easy to um, to take on. Because you're figuring out how do you deliver a punchline. Um, so every now and then, I do a punchline, and I just sound exactly like my dad. It's hilarious. It's amazing. It makes you laugh so hard. Um, <laughs> Uh so and there's a lot of, I, I take something from everybody, but I, I wasn't, I didn't have like, I wasn't like a, a Bill Cosby fan. I got to pick better examples, but I wasn't like, a, I wasn't like, I, I have to be like Bill Cosby. Uh, I was like, uh, I just kind of wanted to figure out what was funny to me and me because was, I, was, I was in TV for years. I was writing in other people's voices. I was, I was a comedy writer on a fishing show for Animal Planet. So I was writing the voice of the professional wrestler <laughs> that hosted it a little bit outside myself on that one. Um and I wanted to just figure out what was funny to me. So I also came into it with a different perspective than I'm trying to be this guy. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to be a better writer and it turned it out turned out I I love doing stand up.
1: Now, were you the joker in the classroom when you were in high school and stuff or just yeah, were you because I I've interviewed a lot of uh, celebrities in my 30 plus years in the business and their persona in public is, is the antithesis of what they grew up like, you know, the shy kid becomes yeah. the great actor or something like that
2: um sometimes but i was also a serious i mean i I think i've i don't know if it's come across but i think i have i'm both a serious person and uh uh uh, an absurd ridiculous person you know i'm both studied and educated about the things i talk about and i'm just the dumbest person i know like i go back and forth all the time i think that's how i've always been um my dad is i would say if i grow up to be half as smart as my dad uh i will have accomplished something he's got he got his phd solely because he was an athlete and they would pay him to get his PhD and he just wanted to row uh he he went to medical school and he was 30 I mean he's done he's lived a very accomplished life he's an MD a PhD he's a doctor doctor uh as we like to joke and um (laughs) so I have a bachelor's of the arts from Pennsylvania State University I'm not at the level you know (laughs) but I I've you know his pursuit of, of of knowledge has always been a part of me and his pursuit of lightening the mood like he's a doctor he and but he's he doesn't take this seriously when he doesn't have to. He, the, You got to lighten up the world. and um, So I go back and forth. And I think I've always been that way. Uh, it depends who the audience is. You know, there's some people that need to be educated and there's some people that just need to laugh. And then I think I read the room.
0: What's the best and the worst thing about what you do? Which career? <laughs> <laughs> as a stand-up, as a stand-up, just making people laugh. And I would imagine, well... Don't let me speak for you, but I was just going to no, say, please. Actually, your, no, 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 I, thought? no, I was going to say, is it, uh, the best thing would probably be bringing joy to someone's, someone's life in terms of making them laugh. You don't know that person might be struggling a bit emotionally and you make them laugh. So if you can, um, go a little deeper there, apart from that general answer that I gave for you.
2: I mean, honestly, so COVID comedy shows are still technically illegal in New York City. uh, And we've been doing outdoor shows all summer. And you can perform to 12 people in a park who just smile at you. But comedy clubs are small with low ceilings and tables packed together for a reason because it builds the momentum of laughter so you can keep rolling as a comic. And when you're outside, it's the exact opposite. And it's a lot harder. And jokes play. I used to close with this one joke for a year, and when I do it outside, it bombs, completely, utterly bombs. Really? So it was my closer and I can't get a laugh because it, I lose, I've lost the momentum and it's so scripted for momentum.
3: Mm-hmm. So when
2: you can't get it up the first punchline, everything else falls off a cliff. So, but in COVID especially, what you said is really on point, um, because to me, it's, it is about, it's a sociological experiment. I'm looking at a room full of people that don't know each other that I don't know. And can I get them on board with my point of view immediately and then sustainably for the rest of this set. And that's a really interesting thing when it works. It brings people together, man. It's people, again, I've, You know, I've, I've performed in some pretty crazy places in Florida and when people come up to you afterwards being like, I needed that. That was hilarious, yeah. let me buy you a beer. And then they start to tell you about the conspiracy theories to elect the lizard princess to the Senate. <laughs> you know, like, like this is not someone I would ever have, I would ever connect with, and this brought us together. And I think comedy brings people together, and that's why I'm really passionate about it. Um, the worst part is it's a, it's a, just a garbage business full of garbage people. I mean, it's like <laughs> a really, I, I didn't realize, I didn't find um, interpersonal problems in my career until I started directing comedy shows. You know, I've worked on, you know, doc, doc travel, um, reality. I've done all these things. And there's a this, there's this sensitive ego in comedy. And people associated with it are are, are way more protective of themselves because they're scared. You know, they little children. They just want to laugh. And they're insecure. So they use comedy as a, as a vehicle. Um, comedy clubs are, are it's the most ununionized industry in the world. Every club is different. Every club's a different owner. And they can exploit you. They don't have to pay you. They can... Ju- Everything about it is tough. There's so much misogyny and there's so much in the world of comedy that's so hard to deal with. It's a, it's a culture of, of drunk comedians in basements that are depressed and hopefully going to therapy, but not always. <laughs> you know, like everything about the culture of it never was attractive to me. And that's why it took me so long to get into it. Um, because I, these are all generalizations of stereotypes. The exact opposite, of course, exists. There's incredible clubs, there's incredible people, and most people are good. <laughs> Um, but it's a really hard business that most people will never succeed at on any level and I think the only reason I've survived it this long is because I have another career in entertainment so like you can't hurt me on stage right. um, you know I'm, I'm you going you can boo me off the stage and I'm still gonna go home and work for Netflix I'll be fine uh, it's okay you know yeah. um, you don't want to listen to this joke for 12 people but a million people are gonna watch the next one I tell so it's like what are you it's fine
0: talking about hurting you on stage you mentioned before that every, just about every comedian was a bomb at some point. Yeah. Have has, has it ever reached to the point where you're talking about hurting you on stage, where someone threw a bottle at you or a chair at you?
2: I once had a dude reach for a, a gun. Really? Um, I made a joke. Let me think, what was the joke? Man, this is a long time ago. This is early in my career too. This is one of my first like heckling moments that was like a resounding success. But I told the joke, and it was self-deprecating. Uh, and I think, uh, I don't, I have absolutely no idea how he interpreted it, but it was like this dude from the projects in the back of the room and all of his boys were on the other side of the room and he came late. So he was sitting separate for them. So all this ego was built up. And I, del- I think I delivered the joke in his direction. But it was like a joke about like, I th- it might have been this joke I used to do where I say I don't like picking up drunk girls at bars because I'm bringing home a drunk girl she doesn't know what she's consenting to and I don't want to wake up next to a girl that looks over me and goes oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I slept with another gay guy. <laughs> and, so uh, I, I think it was like it was a joke that or similar and he stood up and I can't use most of the words he used uh, but he reached into his belt and he just said did you just call me gay Ooh. and the whole room went completely silent and I was like no but thanks for asking. And everybody laughed at that. (laughs) Uh (laughs) And so he like sat back down and then I told my next joke and everybody laughed at that. And I looked back and I said, by the way, that also doesn't mean you're gay. And everybody laughed at that. (laughs) And he came up to me afterwards and like shook my hand. It was like funny stuff, dude. Um, But I I think the only reason that situation they laughed at that line was because the tension was so intense, like just fell off a cliff because this guy stood up in this room it's small, I mean, this room is not, you know, it fits 30 people, it's packed. And, uh, and I, just by saying anything as calmly as I could humanly possibly muster, <laughs> I it broke the tension. But that's the closest I've come. Yeah.
1: As a writer, flipping to the other side of your life, yeah. as a writer, you know, I've written two books. I've written TV shows. I am in, in the middle of writing screenplays, and I don't know about you, but you know that little board behind you with all your notes on it. Man, I have got notes everywhere. You should. I mean, look, look at this, man. This is my desk right now.
2: Should we now. just? Should we just? Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, <laughs> throw all of our notebooks. I at got my. Trick? I got my tablet
1: here too. You know, I've got. I, I bought this new computer which we're recording oh, on right now. It's got sticky. It's got these little sticky things on my screen. Yeah. My whole screen is yeah. full, and it's like. Yeah. I I get inspiration from so many places. I love. I'm a history. I love history. I mean, I've, I've got sure. a. I'm working on a, a screenplay now that has to do with one of my relatives who was on D-Day. In Normandy, which wow. you, know, you don't hear a lot about, black people being on D Day in Normandy, um, you For know, sure. you know, so I and I didn't know I had this relative in my family until my cousin brought it to my attention. So you know, I started writing that, but you know, when I and I go back and forth, sometimes I'm trying to write humorous stuff. That's great. Obviously, that movie is going to be a little more serious in nature, and. Um, and I struggle sometimes, even as a writer, just trying to find that, turn that phrase that I know is going to be the perfect line in the movie, or if I have a joke that I have to incorporate, I'm not a comedian, I'm not you. So for me, writing a joke doesn't come naturally to me. I'm better just responding to you as opposed to yeah. and writing the joke. Um, you know, what is, uh, I, I guess I, I took this long, circuitous route to say, what kind of, um, what is your process, I guess, to sitting down and writing that TV show or writing that comedy special or writing that show for BET?
2: So, I mean, the first thing I'll say is uh, that, that screenplay sounds awesome. And I think the subtitle should be The Blackest Story in a White Guy World. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I didn't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't charge me royalties for that, okay?
3: <laughs> it's a
2: gift. Um, don't make me famous. Um, no, it's... Uh, My writing process changes every single joke, everything I work on, because it depends where the idea starts from. Sometimes I have a a concept that I want to write a joke about. Um, For example... I have, a, I have a joke about uh, how I'd rather go to jail in Scandinavia than move to Alabama because their prisons are more progressive than our society.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that,
2: was, that was the premise. And uh, I started with that because I was reading as I was traveling to Norway to do a show, I was literally on the flight there reading about the prison systems in Norway. They have a mandatory maximum sentence. You can only be in jail for 21 years in Norway. Um, they have this is in prison in Norway. There's horseback ridings for, for the less, lessons for the inmates. Like they get the keys to their room. They have little kitchens. Like this is just better than my summer camp. Like this is incredible. <laughs> you know. It's, so I, then I started building the joke from there, kind of from that premise and that reaction. And that joke I've been working on for four years. And it's, in my opinion, not, not done. Um, so sometimes jokes take forever. It's a two minute, two and a half minute bit, maybe tops. And it's not done. So, and I, but I can do it. I do it all the time. And I just, I see, I see the, the fractures and the holes. And even if everything gets a laugh, it's not done. Right. Um, so it depends on what the, the audience is. It depends on what the goal is. Um, the flip side is I did a series. I did a lot of like stupid little comedy series on TikTok during quarantine because I had the time. Um, and I have a hard time as a per, I'm very perfectionist, especially with like putting out like comedy content because I I make content for the biggest distributors in the, in the in the country, you know, yeah. so it, it says something about me if I make garbage looking garbage content and comedy and I and, and I think that's a really dumb way to look at anything you put out there. I think mm-hmm. life is about putting out stuff. I think it's all about failing. I think my entire career is based on failing up. Um, so but TikTok for me, was actually a great avenue and for anybody that wants to like throw funny crap at the wall and see what sticks because it's a pretty democratic outlet where anybody can find anything right. um, and anybody can go viral. So I did a bunch of series and one of them I did. a, I did a series where I did roast jokes of all 50 states.
1: I, I actually saw that on YouTube.
2: Oh, nice. Yeah, awesome. I watched it. <laughs> um, I appreciate it, man. It, it, it didn't start as a series. It started as this is a funny idea. I'll do five and see what happens I didn't know I didn't write the format I didn't structure it I just wrote I think I wrote like 10 or 15 jokes and I picked five that it felt like they flowed together as if you're like telling a story you know one was a misdirection from another one is this one is that some paired some call back and then people liked it so I did another one and then I did another one and suddenly I was like I gotta now I have to finish something so my writing process from that the beginning was first draft ideas throw it at the wall and put it out there And then by the third part, I sort of develop a rhythm of how I delivered jokes. And I found really fun ways where I could rant about places in really fun ways. Um, And then that became the thing. So I was like, how do I find the next rant? And sometimes I didn't even write it. Sometimes I would start shooting the jokes. And then I would just kind of go off on something. And so the writing process for that changed episode to episode, joke to joke. Um, But uh, so it depends. I mean, you can pick any, any joke from that. My joke for Florida was Florida is America's erectile dysfunction um (laughs) yeah 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 Uh, yeah, right it's uh everybody calls it the wang of america but i like the idea that it's dysfunctional and i found the shortest possible way to say that Um, so the premise was clear but i don't know what it was for illinois i found an obscure fact about lincoln and i wrote a very long joke about that i love that i don't know if i'll ever do it on stage but i've taken a lot of those to stage now because um uh it just that came entirely out of history. You know, it was just, I was reading facts. When I find something that's interesting to me, I run with it. And so it, I, I, I wrote jokes about um, the, uh, the, the uh, I can't remember he's the president or prime minister now of South Africa, um, but the, the guy that was in office previously, uh, he has Wikipedia, I was reading his Wikipedia page and his number of kids was an estimate like he's got approximately <laughs> 20 kids because he's like a, he's non-monogamous he's got multiple wives which is a cultural tribal thing yeah and the student so the joke was just like you're president i was talking about they, they think of themselves as more conservative to us being more liberal but i was yeah. like that's not true you president dude has so many kids wikipedia lists his number of children as an estimate like that and that was the joke and it turned into just out of fact
1: i guess know? child support's not an issue there huh
0: well
2: that dude stole a lot of money so not for him yeah
0: (laughs) do you see a space for doing stand-up virtually and um i'm answering the question from two different angles um because i would imagine that you playing off of a live audience stand um in front of a lot audience actually helps you and and the other part of it is is it economic economically viable for you to do that uh virtually
2: so it's short answer is it sucks mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it just does it, and you guys know you're interviewing people remotely versus being in the room with them you feed off of the energy you build rapport it's different and with comedy it is all about the energy it is all about the reaction the give and take with an audience so i've done a lot of online shows some zoom some instagram live some facebook lives some through other formats And when a lot of people mute the audience because they don't want people to heckle and interrupt and people, they don't understand that they're they're doing their dishes, we're going to hear it. So you kind of have to mute most people. But if I can't hear the audience, who the hell am I talking to? I don't need you. I can do this by myself. (laughs) Right. So... When the audience is live, uh, it's been really fun. And it's just an adapt- adaptation. You know, there's a difference between performing in a small bar versus on a theater for 400 people. Those are different rooms. And you learn to deliver jokes differently for each room. Zoom is just another room. But if you're not getting the feedback, it, it, its value to me falls off a cliff. I think audiences still like it. but And I still do it. But it, it's hard for me to enjoy it in any respect if I'm not getting the feedback. Um, is there a way to monetize it? Yes, um, and a lot of comics have in interesting ways. There are online comedy clubs now. Um, I think the Nowhere Comedy Club is a big one um, that I've seen a lot. You know, people are doing this thing. Comedy, some of the comedy actual venues around the world, around mm-hmm. the country, are starting to do half Zoom, half live shows where they can only fill 20%, 50% capacity. So you can buy a ticket for 15 bucks to be there in the person or 11 bucks to watch it at home on Zoom. So people are adapting. That's what's so interesting about this yeah. time, man, is you have to adapt. And we can look at it as a negative, which it is, but uh, there's also a lot of positive to come out of this if you're willing to change the way you see the world and have more than just the tunnel vision perspective that we all kind of get sucked into about our lives. So comedy is adapting and I hope it survives, but this is, this is not a business where everybody's rich and uh, can just chill out for a couple of years. You know, clubs have to exist for us to have places to perform and um, I think it's going to take a hit, and I hope I hope it yeah, I hope I think, it holds I stronger think, than um, I expected. A lot it. of
1: people are under this misguided impression that people who work in entertainment are rich because they see all those who've made it. They don't see the folks behind the scenes who are sleeping in their car, you know. You know, I know in Hollywood we always say, "Yeah, yeah, you're waiting tables." Hell, some people can't even get that job, um, you, you know. And, and it's yeah, you know, it's a
2: rags to riches for most of us. Um, yeah, you, you in stand-up comedy. You're, uh, somebody once said you you have to reintroduce yourself to the audience every time. Every time you are on stage until TMZ is doing it for you, and that's essentially the real. I, I, my buddy was just on America's Got Talent, and he was sleeping on a couch. <laughs> he may still be sleeping on a couch. I actually don't know. I've not asked him. Um, and he's he does it just by choice. You know, he there's a lot of things you can do with your life, and he's putting everything into this, and he's brilliant. He's a brilliant comic. Um, but they uh, You see somebody on Conan, they're going home. Right and living with roommates like these is, this is not a lucrative business unless you really maybe parlay that
1: into a sitcom, you know, like, you know, what what Cedric the entertainer and Steve Harvey did or something other thing like that, unless you can, you know, Michael Richards uh, and those guys, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, if you can move it into another place space, uh, then your comedy can, you can continue to do your comedy for peanuts because you've got this other thing over here where you're actually able to make a living and, and,
2: but also, you're oh, famous. true, and too. You know, you
1: don't want to matter of fact, in a, in a lot of cases, you may no longer have <laughs> because it's all um, relative. <laughs> but, you <know>. Right, exactly. Also, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, very true. As you know, we're part of a travel show and you have traveled all over the world. Uh, hit, hit me up with some of your favorite places to visit. I know we talked to you that you uh, kind of uh, t- took your tours of Asia for a while, but, uh, and you mentioned Africa. Uh, lay down some of your other places that you've been that you actually really enjoyed.
2: I mean, I think uh, I'll. I can. I, I I choosing my favorite country is like choosing between your children, right? Uh, and you love them all for different reasons, except for Jamaica. <laughs> Jamaica was a piece of well, shit. Th- thank God, uh, but I all the have other one ones child. are great. Yeah, Go ahead. Um, that's, a joke. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Jamaica was awesome. I loved it. Um, but uh, <laughs> it also was a piece of shit. Um, no, but um, the <laughs> the different reasons for loving different places. Japan is. Um, one of the most unique places on earth. It's you know, it's Western culture meets meets Eastern history and eastern values in a way that is remarkable. It's in New York Tokyo's New York City with silence. You know, you're on the subway and if you're talking at normal volume, they are you are the loud one. It they are so polite, they are so community-based, and it is a remarkable culture. Um India has always been one of my favorite places in the world because I'm addicted to culture shock and India is a land of extremes. You know, you don't get to stay in a five-star hotel be uh, hiding from the poverty because the slums are across the street because that's where the employees live to work in the hotels most of the time. It's a spectacularly beautiful, interesting culture. Um, Finland is one of my favorite places on earth, which is, I think, probably my weirdest answer to this question, both because they think I'm funny and that's really all that matters to me. Um, but it's also I've filmed multiple travel shows there, and I've been in the Arctic I was in the Arctic Circle in in February, and uh, it is a beautiful place. Wow. And uh, I think Finland is like is the uh, Finland is like when you look at Scandinavia as like a high school of like the high school cliques. They're all very different personalities. Like Norway's are the rich kids, Swedes are the hot kids. Uh, The Danes are like the cool popular traveled kids and and then Finland is kind of like left to be like the punk rock kids (laughs) that have to figure out how to be cool and how to stand (laughs) out because nobody really gives a shit about them. Uh, That's Finland which means they grew up to be the coolest most interesting people because they had to and they're incredibly progressive. They have simulators for when you learn to get your license so you learn how to crash your car in case you do. I mean, they've experimented with universal income. Uh, they are so, pro- their education system is incredibly progressive. And they're some of my favorite people, man. I, uh, I love the Finns. I, it's, it's, it's really a spectacular country. And it doesn't, also saunas are the jam. Um, uh, I love a nice, good sauna, nice. man. So, yeah, we Finns actually had a there. guest
1: on, uh, Catherine uh, Parker Magyar. She used to write for Forbes. Actually, she still does. But her parents had her at the Arctic Circle at 14 months old. Yeah, if you, if you get a chance, it was just two or wow. three episodes ago. Um, yeah, I, I, I forgot the name of yeah. the episode, but yeah, um, yeah, 14 months old. She was at the Arctic Circle, and we, Dave and I both asked her, you know, why her parents took her up there, and I, I forgot <laughs> yeah. her answer, but it was funny as hell. <laughs> I
2: mean, she just like, you know, I was like, really? 14 months? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, Dude, I, I've been there in the heart of the summer and the heart of the winter. In the arctic circle so i've been there for summer solstice 24 hours of sun and it's insane and i've been there when the sun's up for like two three hours a day basically and it's insane uh and i recognize that if i lived there through those periods of time i would want to hang myself with my snow-covered boots i'm sure but i don't and i visited and it's amazing it really is i mean listen when the sun's only up for a couple hours that means it's always on the horizon that's and if you know anything light. about filmmaking yep. <laughs> that's the best life so if, Couple at two or three in the afternoon and a frozen snow covered lake with no footsteps because there's only like 12 people in Finland. Uh, it is just untouched, pristine beauty that is gorgeous. Uh, and they walk around without gloves on because they're insane human <laughs> beings
0: and I love them for it. <laughs> Our comedians, are you, are you funny all the time at home or do you see this as a job? I mean, we do a regular nine to five, we work, we come home. Are you a funny person all the time? And do you see that? Uh, would you see that as rehearsing or practicing your craft uh, constantly? Some comics, you can tell that
2: that's what they do. It's like if they're talking to you, they're working out bits and it's exhausting. Comics are exhausting human beings. I love them. They're my favorite people on earth, but they're exhausting. <laughs> so I try not to be too much of that guy, but sometimes it's, it's relevant. You know, I'm, I'm working on a documentary series right now. And I'm interviewing a lot of people that are experts in their fields. And uh, I'm this, I am super serious, but I'm cracking jokes, partially because when I interview people on camera, and they are not performers, it's again, comedy is a vehicle that I use to loosen them up. If they see that I'm making myself a fool of myself, or if I'm willing to curse, or if I'm completely relaxed, that I can make jokes uh then they they loosen up they're they're better they become better performers they become more comfortable because the hardest thing is when they're like trying to just be professional and smart and I want professional and smart and likable on camera and I want to make them the best version of themselves so uh every now and then I'll, I'll realize that I said something funny for real and not just in the context of a conversation and i like scribble it down and every now and then I pull a joke from it but I try to be more in the moment um and I just try to be funny when it's relevant. You know, I don't try to shoehorn it in. I like being serious. I like being studious about the world. I I, I like both sides of the way my mind thinks. And, um, but I don't, especially the the better, the better I think I get at comedy, the more comfortable I get at comedy. And uh, the more I'm comfortable, just being that piece of shit in a world full of <laughs> professional experts because I figured out the audience. Like I figured out how to be just inappropriate enough that the guys in suits will still laugh, you know? Nice. Um, and there's something satisfying about that, about making them laugh and about us getting on the same Wayne so they trust me more. Um, so I don't know, it depends, but I, I, I the answer is all of the above, uh, I guess. <laughs> we, we're always writing, we're always thinking, um, and, uh, but sometimes you also, if you're smart and you want to be a healthy human being, you turn it off, <laughs> you just be yourself.
0: Is there something, you know, people tend to use this phrase all the time that you're naturally funny, is that true?
2: Totally. Um, my friend Ashley Gavin is a credible comedian and she's one of these people that found a ton of success with a podcast, uh, uh, it's called, We're Having Gay Sex. Uh, it's just, <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing, it's brilliant.
3: Um, really so, so
2: funny. Um, She's a great comic on stage. She's turned, uh, turned the quarantine into a place to create a much bigger audience for herself. And she, I started doing stand-up with her. I was there two, three, four months into her stand-up career. And the jokes she was telling then are still some of the jokes in her like, A-list hour. You know, it she's she was funny immediately. And that's rare. And that has more to do with her knowing who she was she knows herself she knew what was her point of view on the world and she knew what was funny to her so she was writing out the gate the funniest versions of herself uh, and then there's other people that are just naturally great performers she's she also has that but there are people that don't know how to write yet but you see them on stage and you like them yeah. you know like a lot of people think that's what pete davidson is like you can watch his stand up a funny very very funny guy but he's not the guy you remember any of his jokes you just like him you know, that dude was just, he was a teenager and he was performing at all the clubs in New York and he was funny. And you don't know why, you just liked him. So those are two different ways in which you can be naturally funny, but neither one carries you without the incredible amount of work. Ashley's one of the hardest people, I know, hardest workers that I know. Um, so, you know, you don't get the coast on that or you won't make it in this business. Right. Unless you're like a, I don't know, a, a trans Inuit, non-binary, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the only one then maybe somebody's gonna pick you up for a tv show because that's cool um but no you really have to work you know entertainment you know it's it's um especially as a performer especially as a comedian uh you're only as funny as you were your last show and you're only as funny as you were the people that saw you and uh it's the problem with like I don't put a ton of material online because this is a harder way to absorb my energy than live so if I put a bit online I have a bit about working for BET that I used to Close with it was it's still one of my favorite jokes. I love this joke, and it bombs when I post it online. It does not do well, yeah. and I close with it. It does well at every show in every country because everybody understands. the whole joke is basically that I was the, I was supposed to direct a show for A and E. Uh, then they needed to make a diversity hire and I lost the job and then the show moved to BET and I got hired and look who's a fucking diversity hire now (laughs) you know it's just a really simple relatable concept um but for some reason it doesn't translate online in the same way that it does live and and so like until someone's shooting me in close-ups like Louis CK in a special um I don't want to put all my material online because it doesn't justify what I think I can do yeah so there's so many layers to the way in which I'm rambling and not answering your question. It's remarkable, yeah. but uh, I hope you got something. <laughs> yeah, we got a nugget out of it, buddy.
1: Um, yeah. it, it, you know, and it's funny because I think the physical being of a comic is almost as important and maybe even more so than the joke itself.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it depends on the comedian. You look at, there's, there's deadpan comics who kill. Yeah. And there's no you don't know you do nothing they're nobody I mean they use it if they're smart they, they're, it's a performative mechanism another comic that one of my best friends in comedy one of the funniest guys I know his name is Daniel Simonson. he's Norwegian lives here in New York he has a he has a thick unique accent he's very monotone but he, he also uses it perfectly um, so he's like an anti performer performer almost you know people call him alternative and he's he's just a brilliant comic that uses who he is he understands who he is and how he comes across. Um, so is that more about the performance or is it about he figured out how to write for himself? And that's, it, it's so hard to separate yeah. the two yeah. things. It's uh, he's a, he, he under, he's a brilliant writer for himself. He's been on, you can watch him on Colbert, you can watch him on Seth Meyers and he, he just really uses who he is, but he's also an incredibly thoughtful, great writer. Um, so it's, it's, you know, chicken or the egg, man. It's, uh, it's hard to say. Some people will never be a good enough performer, no matter how good of a writer they are. That I think is more true than the reverse. I think you can be an OK writer and a phenomenal performer, and you can go much farther. Um, so in that regard, you're also right.
0: How many folks come back to see you, not wanting to see hear the same joke over and over? And what pressure does that put on you to have new material all the time?
2: So uh, a couple of anecdotes. One, in New York City, there's too many people here. And if, you, <laughs> if you're a friend or something, and you come out to see me, first of all, I'm always, because of my perspective about comedy, unless I'm being paid you know, good money. I'm, I'm trying new jokes. I'll do If the club gig, I'll do 80% of a material, but I'm always working on something new. So you'll always see something new. You'll always see a new set order. You will always see me trying to reverse jokes, to see if they play better. Um, so I try not to, it, it gets you in your head to think that way for sure. If you see a friend of yours is at a show suddenly, or even a comic that was at the last show, sometimes you want to impress other comics yeah. and you're on shows with them all the time and you want to show that you're doing new stuff. It's, there's a lot of that. Uh, when I went to Finland's a really interesting, uh, audience because it's i always call it a lot of these countries first generation comedy scenes that's maybe a, an unfair american centric uh, way of looking at stand-up but they didn't have stand-up comedy until maybe 20 years ago it's it's new <laughs> yeah. you know it's so they're first generation comedians and the younger comedy scene is less but every night of the week you could perform in a suburb outside of helsinki but all the audience are these regulars that on every monday this is their bar and they go watch the comics and every tuesday this is their bar and they Go ask the comics. So the comics there can only work on jokes two or three times tops at each venue until the, the audience would be like, dude, something new. <laughs> they know each other, they know these guys. Um, so they, their workflow is actually very limited in a way because they can only really try things so many times. And one of the times I was in Finland, uh, this I went back to headline the, the, this big theater in, in Helsinki called the Apollo, and it was a really big deal. And so I booked a bunch of these these bar shows to prepare. And basically what I, would did, what I would do was I would do all the new material I wanted to try to see what would work so I could build my headlining set at the bar shows. And if I bombed too many times in a row, I would throw in one of the jokes that I knew worked from the past shows in Finland. And so I was bombing, 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 did this new joke that did well, and then I got the hand raised. And at this point, I had like my response. I had like a bit that I would do about them raising their hand. I would just make fun of them and then I'd call on them. And uh, so I did that. I made fun of him. And then I called on him. And he goes, I just wanted to say, I I saw you do that joke last year. And I just wanted to offer you an (laughs) alternative punchline. (laughs) This
0: dude remembered me
2: from a year ago. Wow. Um, Wow, wow. And I never would have expected that. Um, So you can't, there's pressure to that. And it's one of these, there's, there's all these weird psychological hurdles in stand-up comedy. It's performing for your peers and wanting to impress them. It's friends are at the show and wanting to impress them. It's you don't know anybody and wanting to impress strangers. And there's, if you bomb, you're going to feel terrible about yourself for a week. And if you do great, you're going to feel great. And it's a drug and it's heroin and you're trying to get your fix, trying to get your laugh. There's all of these things. It's why comics are insane. It's, <laughs> because it really is a psychological battle with this success or failure of a really hard thing. Where you're never getting on stage as much as you want. If you're a real comic and you want to do this five times a night, that's not happening for me. So, um, one one failure can feel terrible because you know you can't try again for a couple of days. Right. Um, so there's a lot there's a lot of layers to it, and you're, what you're describing is definitely one of them. But you have to learn to work through all that stuff.
1: Um, In the remaining time we have left, uh, what is ahead for you in 2021? Because I've just put a big X through 2020 other than Independence Day, which happens to be November 3rd. Get your behind out and vote um
2: yes <laughs> so well said independence day <laughs> I, I've actually got it
1: marked on my calendar I have a big whiteboard on the floor it's got independence day um yeah I know we have to still deal that. with the lame duck session but that's a story for another day but what's ahead for you in 2021 I know you've had to make some adjustments with your comedy schedules I know you're writing some stories which I'm not going to ask you to get into because I know you, you you can't uh but your you know your travel career what do you see uh, uh in line for you next year
2: you know I I've never been a big guy for planning too far ahead because a I recognize I changed my mind a lot as a liberal thinker. Uh, <laughs> oh,
1: you damn liberal, you! I know. <laughs>
2: I, listen, I get why they hate us. I hate me. It Makes total sense. Um, but I, uh, you know, i I don't think we're. I don't think twenty twenty one is going to be this reopening of the world. You know, to me, I want to get back on the road. I was a. I used to direct House Centers International, and I would love to go back to that show in between the other projects I'm working on from time to time. Um, you know, I'm 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 working on this documentary series right now, and uh, directing people all over the world remotely from my living room. Like, I'm not wearing pants right now. You're not wearing pants right now. But why? Uh, why do I have to camera? a camera? You know, it's like, what well, is the weird way to work? Um, so I listen. I'm I'm trying to take this COVID situation seriously and take a long-term approach to it. Honestly, because I want to be back on the road. I, I want to visit my family in Australia. My sister, step-sister there had a baby during uh, all of this, and I want to I want to meet the kid and the uh, So there's all these things that I I hope to do that are really more about life finding a sense of normalcy. And and, and my hope is that we can find some sanity in America, which will give some hope to the world. And we can slowly get back on track to handling this stuff, the way it should be handled with responsibility and leadership. Um, And until that happens, we're all at the whim of this. This is why voting is so important. So uh, listen, I always want to work on a late night show. Um, I worked on that show Fifty Central for for, for with the Fifty Cent on BET, which was a dream show to work on. And uh, my hope is to get back on late night shows and to be writing topical comedy for late night stuff. Um, I want to be back on the road as soon as possible as a comic and uh, everything else, man. I'm taking this drive.
3: I
1: I just want to be back on the road as a damn traveler, man. I am I, I am yeah. I am so <laughs> claustrophobic. I mean, I, I rode my bike twenty miles this morning just to get outside. You know, and, and you have to do that here in Vegas early because I think it's 90 something degrees already here. Yep. Uh, yep. But yeah, I, I mean, I've been on an airplane once since COVID started. That was a 45 minute mm-hmm. trip to LA to see my kid. Other than that, mm. it's like I, I, I'm anxious to do something. I mean, I, even these, these screenplays and the TV shows I'm writing and stuff like that, you know, I can't even you know go sit face to face with a, a, a potential network or a director that I may want to hire or something and have a conversation with them. Everything has to be done like yep. this. Yeah,
2: and, you know it's hard man it is uh you know i've been calling this white collar prison because you get your hour a day of outside in the yard and other than that you're stuck i'm in like a 500 square foot apartment man i can see my bed my toilet my front door all from where i'm sitting <laughs> that's that's fucking prison <laughs>
1: <laughs> you should have been what, what uh, was that finland or norway you said that had the nice prison Norway, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they should probably I serve did. you a gourmet meal while you're in the cell
2: if they'll take me I will stab a dude I'm fucking ready <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah no I totally get Um, uh, I, I before I let you go I saw something you were you had mentioned this at the top you were working on a podcast um uh, are you still going forward with that or uh, are you pulling that off a little bit and adjusting it how, how are you doing that
2: so it's, it's actually an idea I had before COVID and then it became, I never did it because it felt too self-serving and then it became really relevant in the age of COVID, uh, especially being pulled, you know, I literally after six weeks of circling the globe, I, I was more passionate than ever. And it's a series I'm calling, remember traveling. Um, and it's, a, it's inspired by the fact that I've, you know, I've interviewed people all over the world for 15 years and my friends have traveled all over the world that have incredible stories this, and I'm looking for it. I've identified a handful of these stories that have been told over the years that I've never forgotten and that exemplify really the best of humanity. You know, stories about being a soldier in Afghanistan and being the only guy that goes to the tea shop to talk to the, the elder statesman in the village, which ended up getting them to tell the place that there was an IED planted at the front door and saved people's lives. It is these stories that I've heard that are absolutely incredible and they're all about sharing culture and respecting other people's culture and the value of that. And so... I wanted to create a platform to tell these stories while we couldn't go and tell them ourselves. So I've started interviewing people. Um, I got backlogged by jumping into this, this, this job that I'm doing, but uh, it's, I'm absolutely going to keep making it. And it's not going to be that funny. Because uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's about not even about me. It's, you know, I'm going to do an intro and I'm going to talk about in And the way that I'm roasting every state, I'm going to do my intro and I'm going to have jokes about the places that I'm talking about. But then I'm going to let these people tell their story. And uh, I'm really excited about it. It's, you know, my whole career has been about getting people, teaching people how to tell their story in the best possible way. And I'm really excited to, to do that in a totally altruistic, uh, lose money trying situation. It'll be fun. <laughs> <That's nice. laughs> yeah, I also saw, um, what
1: was it? Uh, a joke blogger. I saw a couple of your stuff on jokeblogger.com.
2: Uh, funny, yeah,
1: and I, and, I, and I laughed. It wasn't the fact that you, you know, I laughed. Now that I've gotten to know you a little bit through this, and I can put the energy and your your voice behind it, but some of your jokes stood the test of time, even with you not physically being there. So I got it.
2: I appreciate you, man. Those are old jokes too. Joke bloggers have been picking me up recently. I got to call them or tweet them. I don't know how it works, but there uh, yeah, they found me and they have retweeted a lot of my jokes, and that means a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Buddy. We got to go
1: pimp slap a few people, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. insane. <laughs> Am I
2: allowed to say that, David? Is that cool? No. That's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: You, you you notice I haven't minced words. I'm not. Like I said, I'm not very good at being politically correct. I try sometimes, especially in the travel business. I, I, I worked at the Travel Channel back in the late 90s. And one of the things that I've always criticized the travel and tourism industry about is like we are too stoic when it comes to promoting travel. It's like if, you know, it's like the corporate guys came in and said, here's your press release. You have to say this and no more. No, that's not how people travel, man. We want the experience. We want to be able to feel it like what you're talking about with your podcast. So I sometimes had to pull back a little bit and keep the straight and narrow. So when somebody like you comes on our podcast, we could just let it go that's right <laughs> yeah, let, them,
2: let them let them tweet their anger at me you guys are safe that's fine. <laughs> I, I really don't care so you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, dude you you but you hit the nail on the head though because travel channel it, it they have always been in that that they've always been this corporatist perspective on travel there's a reason why they're making ghost hunting shows like that where's the trap like what do you they've they've so many networks they develop a niche so they get some fame fame they get some awareness and they build an audience and then they go as wide as possible to water that audience down to try to bring more people in and it almost always fails and I hate to see travel channel do it and I you know Anthony Bourdain is gonna be missed for a long time because he was amazing for so many reasons but I think the real secret to Anthony Bourdain's success is that he his ability to be empathetic and he knew when to shut up yeah he knew when to let people tell their story yep
1: no and you're right
2: that you you don't cast for that right like nobody's casting a host that does this (laughs)
1: right <laughs> yeah. no you're you're absolutely right I, I know you know where poker first appeared on tv no the travel channel really yep after i left they put poker on don't ask me why the hell they put poker on the travel channel but it be kind of put them on the map because when yeah. when i started the travel channel was uh back in those days owned by discovery and right. It was, I think it was either the only one or two uh, networks that Discovery actually own where they bought it from somebody else. Everything else was self-funded mm. through uh, the guy who uh, discovered uh, the Discovery Channel, pardon the pun. But so everything, so we get this show... And you know we had Steve Irwin on, you know, for the the crocodile guy. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, not that Urkel. Um, not that Urkel. <laughs> Urkel. <laughs> <laughs> Although Urkel probably would have been a better substitute for some of the original programming that we had on that network at the time. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was like watching paint dry. I said, "This is never going to encourage anybody to travel." And you're right. Now we got ghost stories and stuff like this. Like, really? come on guys, I I can think of a thousand different show ideas I can put on right now that would get you an audience bigger than what you have.
2: Yep. So. I got it right here in this book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, Dave and I
1: are working on one as well. And I'm not even sure if I'm going to pitch it to them or not. I, I may hold on to that and do something else with it. But uh, anyway, my friend, I, man, I appreciate you, man. I, I'm glad you did this with appreciate us and you. we were able to uh, track you down. And I wish I could spend the rest of the afternoon talking to you.
0: Uh, so many questions.
2: Anytime, man. I'll come back anytime. You guys are great. I respect what you're doing. I, you're putting travel out there in a positive way, and then I think that's so important. So um, I'm all for it, man. You guys are you're good dudes, and uh, I'm gonna five star the shit out of you when I'm done. <laughs> Only my episode, but you get <laughs> it. Ah, yeah, you get it. You I get understand.
1: It. Well, just just for your edification, your episode will be on a week from tomorrow, the nineteenth.
2: Right on, nineteenth. Uh, dope. Yeah. Oh. All right, I got you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna post the shit out of this shit. You guys are. You're going to get one new fan because nobody gives a shit about me, but it'll be good. One good fan. I'm not even going a
1: crap about me anymore. I mean, you know, I mean, this isn't the idea that Dave and I started out with. We were able to travel when we came up. We were actually going to Tokyo All for right. the Olympics
0: yeah Whoa, that was really? that was actually
1: going to be part of our our shtick we were actually going to oh. launch by having that live event where i'm able to dave and i could you don't know this about dave he doesn't talk about himself a lot but dave's a videographer by trade that's what he does for a living so right on you know us being able to go to tokyo and sitting down and talking to these guys would have been great now you know
2: dude i i i, I get it i i, well, I started a, I had a project when i went to south africa it was more to shoot a documentary series that i was going to turn into like a video podcast and. Uh, It was really heady and I pitched it as a series and I eventually got, you know, it's sometimes you don't finish project and it's something I may go back to one day, but it's all about, you know, it's all about traveling and culture. And uh, I love that, man. I'm sorry that you can't do that. I hope 2021 puts you guys back on the road because that's a great idea.
1: I'll start with independent. I'll start with independence day. I'll take that as a small thing (laughs) for right now. Okay. That's right. That's the only thing that matters.
0: Justin, thank you for appearing on our show today and please come back. you I take you at your word, you know, I'll come and grab you. I'll find you if you don't come back. All Anytime. right.
2: Anytime, my friend.
0: Well, you you can read more about Justin on his website, justinhermancomedy.com. Until next time for Michael, this is Dave. Thank you for listening.